Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we beam weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition we search for alien and ancient civilizations. But first up, here's news of a water world. Oceans ahoy! A hundred light years away, an ocean may splash over the entire surface of a planet. Astronomers from the University of Montreal in Canada announced that exoplanet TOI 1452b is a super-Earth that's just a little bit larger than Earth and lies in a region of its solar system where liquid water could exist. Vast amounts of water many times the amount of water on Earth, could account for the planet's lower density, as opposed to a world made mostly of rock and metal. NASA's Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite Telescope, TESS, surveys the skies for exoplanets. It recently detected this potential water world when it passed in front of one of its own two red dwarf stars, causing a dip in brightness. The two stars orbit each other, and they're separated by such a small distance 97 astronomical units, or about two and a half times the distance between the Sun and Pluto, that the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite Telescope sees them as a single point of light. The binary star system is located in the constellation of Draco the Dragon. Draco is a circumpolar constellation that's always visible at night in the northern sky. Based on a slight decrease in brightness every 11 days, scientists predicted a planet about 70% larger than Earth. 50 hours of follow-up observations from the Canada-France-Hawaii telescope in Hawaii estimated the planet's mass and other characteristics. The resolution of the telescope in Hawaii is high enough to distinguish the two objects, and the images showed that the exoplanet does orbit TOI-1452 which was confirmed through subsequent observations by a Japanese team. It's possible an ocean makes about 30% of TOI-1452b's mass. On Earth, water makes up just 1% of our planetary mass. The presence of liquid water is likely one of the essentials for life. M dwarf stars are the most abundant stars in the neighbourhood near our solar system, and they host, on average, Two and a half planets are from one to five times the radius of Earth, per star. These red dwarf stars are smaller than the Sun, which makes it easier to see the shadow of planets passing in front of them. The dip in brightness of these Earth-sized planets passing in front of the star is sharper than for a bigger star. The smaller size of the star also means that Earth-sized planets would orbit closer to the star to be in the habitable zone where water is liquid which means they cause the dips in brightness more frequently, which also makes them easier to find. The team of over 50 scientists published their results in the Astronomical Journal, 
The paper was titled TOI-1452b, Spiro and Tess Reveal a Super-Earth in a Temperate Orbit Transiting an M4 Dwarf. everybody? This is the question asked by Nobel laureate Enrico Fermi in his famous paradox. If the universe supports intelligent tool-using life, why haven't we seen any definitive signs of them? SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, was set up to look for evidence of alien civilizations in radio signals. Frank Drake was an astronomer who pioneered this search, and he died last week. Amongst a lifetime of astronomical achievements, he's most well known for the Drake Equation. When radio stations started broadcasting in the 1920s, it didn't take long for scientists to realise radio waves were sending our signals, our radio and later TV transmissions, out into space at the speed of light, potentially travelling long distances across the galaxy. They wondered if the reverse was true, if another civilization from a faraway world could also create similar transmissions. Would we be able to tune them in and hear them? In 1960, Frank Drake founded Project Ozma, a project to use a radio telescope pointed at the stars Tor Ceti and Epsilon Eridani. He used a commercial radio receiver designed for shortwave listening and used a simple motor drive to sweep its tuning up and down the dial. He chose to look at frequencies adjacent to the radio emission line 1,420 MHz, emitted by neutral hydrogen in space, on the grounds that this naturally produced line would be known to any technically proficient civilization, and therefore would serve as a marker for the guidance of societies who would wish to make contact. This was at a time when any mention of extraterrestrials or aliens would bring gouts of laughter, what Professor Drake called the giggle factor. Carl Sagan said of the search for extraterrestrial intelligence that the results are just as profound if we found nothing at all as if we found signals from alien civilizations. In 1961, Frank Drake first created the Drake Equation as a formula that estimates how many detectable alien societies may exist in our Milky Way galaxy. The equation is a thought experiment that attempts to calculate the number of communicating civilizations by multiplying several variables. The equation is usually written like this. The number of civilizations in the Milky Way galaxy whose radio emissions are detectable equals the average rate of formation of stars suitable for the development of intelligent life times the fraction of those stars with planetary systems times the number of planets per solar system with an environment suitable for life, multiplied by the fraction of suitable planets on which life actually appears, times the fraction of life-bearing planets on which intelligent life emerges, times by the fraction of civilizations that develop a technology that releases detectable signs of their existence into space, multiplied by the length of time such civilizations release detectable signals into space. In 1961, we didn't know the values for any of these variables. In the 21st century, we now know that the rate of star formation is somewhere around 
three solar masses per year for the Milky Way galaxy. And we now know that most, if not all, stars have planets. We can even find planets around other stars and take pictures of some of the really big ones. The first confirmed observation of a planet orbiting another star was in 1995. The planet is orbiting around a main sequence star called 51 Pegasi b. Originally, planets have been found through two methods, watching them transit in front of a star, which causes a dimming that can be measured from Earth, or examining the gravitational wobbles that planets induce in their parent star as they orbit around it. More recently, a statistical technique called verification by multiplicity allows astronomers to quickly identify what are highly likely to be multiple planet systems, and very unlikely to be anything else. The basic idea behind verification by multiplicity is that planets are often clustered in multi-planet star systems, just like in our solar system, while false positive measurements or mistaken identification of potential planets occur randomly. This means that if false positives are random, then they won't tend to occur together near the same star. So if you observe a star with multiple planet signals, it's unlikely that all the signals are false positives. We can use that observation to quantify how much more likely it is that a star with multiple candidates actually hosts a planet. A study published in 2020 by a large team led by Steve Bryson of NASA's Ames Research Center in California, suggests that more than half of all sun-like stars in the Milky Way may harbor a rocky planet in their habitable zone, the range of orbital distances in which liquid water could exist on a world's surface, using observations from the Kepler Space Telescope, which operated from, from 2009 through 2018. Sun-like dwarf G and K stars are about 7% of all the stars in our Milky Way galaxy. That means there are 7 billion stars in our galaxy with rocky planets, which then reduces to around 300 million stars with rocky Earth-like planets that could potentially be orbiting their star in the Goldilocks zone, where water is not too hot or too cold to be liquid, and therefore might be suitable for life. Their paper was titled The Occurrence of Rocky Habitable Zone Planets around solar-like stars from Kepler's data and was published in the Astronomical Journal. Researchers have so far identified several hundred planets in the habitable zone of their stars using the data from the Kepler Space Telescope. It may take a while to find all 300 million. It's a high enough number to make it seem likely that life evolved on some of these worlds, and that maybe some of that life evolved to be intelligent tool users, and maybe some of the civilizations lasted long enough to send radio signals that we could detect. Professor Drake created the first interstellar message ever transmitted deliberately into space from Earth. Known as the Arecibo message by frequency modulated FM radio waves from the Arecibo Observatory in 1974. The signal carried basic information about humanity and Earth that was sent to the globular star cluster M13, about 25,000 light-years from Earth. So the signal is still travelling. He chose M31 because it was a large and relatively close collection of stars that was available in the sky at the time and place of the message transmission ceremony. The entire message 
consisted of 1,679 binary digits, which is about 210 bytes, transmitted at a frequency of 2,380 MHz. The total broadcast was less than 3 minutes. The number of bits, 1,679, was chosen because it's a semi-prime, the product of two prime numbers, to be arranged in a rectangle as 73 rows by 23 columns. The alternative arrangement, 23 rows by 73 columns, produces a nonsense set of characters. When decoded correctly, the message consists of seven parts. The numbers 1 to 10, the atomic numbers of the elements hydrogen, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen and phosphorus, which make up deoxyribonucleic acid DNA. The formulas for the chemical compounds that make up the nucleotides of DNA, the estimated number of DNA nucleotides in the human genome, and a graphic of the double helix structure of DNA. The physical height of an average man, a graphic figure of a human being, and the human population of Earth. A graphic of the solar system indicating which of the planets the message is coming from, and a graphic of the Arecibo radio telescope and the diameter of the transmitting antenna dish all in chunky bitmapped graphics. Professor Drake was also involved with Carl Sagan and others in designing the plaques carried on the Pioneer 10 and 11 spacecraft and the golden records carried on the Voyager 1 and 2 spacecraft, with messages intended for any intelligent life the spacecraft might encounter on their journeys beyond the solar system. The Pioneer 10 and 11 plaques were sent in 1972 and 73 and show the nude outline figures of human male and female along with several symbols that are designed to provide information about the origin of the spacecraft. The right hand of the man is raised as a sign of goodwill. Although this gesture might not be understood, it was supposed to offer a way to show our opposable thumb and how human limbs can be moved. The man's genitals are drawn in outline, but the woman's are not. The original design presented to NASA headquarters included a line which indicated the woman's vulva. This line, just a line, was erased as a condition for approval of the design by the head of NASA's Office of Space Science and the agency's former chief scientist. The 1977 Voyager 1 and 2 golden records are analog-encoded phonograph-style records of metal, encoding 115 images and a variety of natural sounds, as well as music. They had sounds such as surf, wind, thunder, and the songs of birds and whales. They had spoken greetings in 55 ancient and modern languages, including a spoken greeting in English by the UN Secretary General Kurt Voldheim, and a greeting by Sagan's six-year-old son Nick. They also had footsteps and laughter, and an inspirational message per Aspera ad Astra in Morse code. Musical selections from different cultures and eras were included. The collection of images includes many photographs and diagrams, both in black and white and colour. The first images show mathematical and physical quantities, the solar system and its planets, DNA, human anatomy and reproduction. They took care to include not only pictures of humanity from a broad range of cultures, but also some of animals, insects, plants and landscapes. The images show food, architecture and humans in portraits, as well as people going about their day-to-day -day lives. Many pictures are annotated with one or more indications of scales of time, size or mass. Some images contain indications of chemical composition. 
All measures used on the pictures are defined in the first images, using physical references that are likely to be consistent anywhere in the universe. In 2016, Adam Frank and Woodruff Sullivan published a paper in the journal Astrobiology where they presented the Drake equation in a new light. They noted that technological advancements in astronomy had made possible better estimates of the two Drake equation factors. The fraction of stars with planets is now estimated to be 1, which is all stars have planets. The number of planets per star where conditions are suitable for life is now estimated to be 0.2, meaning 1 in 5 planets can support life. Frank Drake was born on May 28, 1930 in Chicago. He earned a bachelor's degree in engineering physics from Cornell University and a master's and a doctorate in astronomy from Harvard. He was an astronomy professor at Cornell from 1964 to 1984, then held a similar post at the University of California, Santa Cruz from 1984 to 1996. He stayed on as an emeritus professor at the University of California, Santa Cruz after that. Professor Drake also directed the SETI Institute's Carl Sagan Center for the Study of Life in the Universe and chaired the Institute's Board of Trustees. Among many other distinctions and responsibilities, he was a member of the U.S. National Academies of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine, and he chaired the U.S. National Research Council's Board of Physics and Astronomy from 1989 to 1992. Frank Drake died last week at the age of 92. The uncertainties left in Drake's equation serve to show us that the only way to find out if there's other intelligent tool-using life in the universe is to follow Drake's example and look. You're listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Ancient alien archaeology? Astrophysicist Adam Frank and climate modeler at the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies wondered if an industrial civilization had existed on Earth many millions of years prior to our own era, what traces would it have left and would they be detectable today? They began by forecasting the geologic fingerprints that the period of our industrial civilization, the Anthropocene, is likely to leave behind, such as signs of soaring temperatures and rising seas laid down in beds of sedimentary rock. These two features are very similar to hyperthermal events like the Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum, a 200,000-year period that occurred some 55.5 million years ago, when global average temperatures rose by 5 to 8 degrees Celsius. They wondered what tests could plausibly distinguish an industrial cause from otherwise naturally occurring climate changes. They also looked back into the science fiction literature to try and find the earliest example of a story that featured a non-human industrial civilization on Earth. The oldest one they could find was in a 1970s Doctor Who episode. The story is about the present-day discovery of Silurians, an ancient race of technologically advanced reptilian humanoids who predated the arrival of humans by hundreds of millions of years. According to the plot, these highly civilised Saurians flourished for centuries until Earth's atmosphere entered a period of cataclysmic upheaval that forced Homo reptilia to go into hibernation underground to wait out the danger. Today, less than 3% of Earth's surface is urbanised, and the chance that any of our great cities would remain over tens of millions of years is vanishingly low. 
a city's ultimate fate mostly depends on whether the surrounding surface is subsiding, to be locked in rock, or rising, to be eroded away by rain and wind. A city's ultimate fate mostly depends on whether the surrounding surface is going down, subsiding, to be locked in rock, or rising, to be eroded away by rain and wind. For example, New Orleans is sinking, but San Francisco is rising. For all the dinosaurs that ever lived, there are only a few thousand near-complete specimens, or equivalently, only a handful of individual animals across thousands of taxa and species per 100,000 years. After a couple of million years, the chances are that any physical reminder of your civilization has vanished. So you have to search for things like sedimentary anomalies or isotopic ratios that look off. Schmidt and Frank decided the safest assumption to make would be that any industrial civilization now, or hundreds of millions of years ago, would be hungry for energy. That means any ancient industrial society would have developed the capacity to widely exploit fossil fuels and other power sources, just as we did. Fossil fuels would have been around the last 350 million years since the Carboniferous Era. We'd be looking for globalised effects that would leave a worldwide trace, planetary-scale physical-chemical traces of energy-intensive industrial processes and their wastes. Ironically, if a civilization caused ocean rises and climate change, it could end up depositing lots of organic matter that eventually becomes a source of fossil fuels for later civilizations. Like the Drake equation, they also had to look at how long a civilization that would leave traces might last. Our own industrial age has existed for only about 300 years, out of a multi-million year history of humanity. That's only a minuscule slice of time within the half a billion years or so that creatures have lived on land. Humanity's present rapacious phase of fossil fuel use and environmental degradation is unsustainable for long periods. In time, it will diminish either by human choice or by the force of nature, making the Anthropocene less of an enduring era and more of a blip in the geologic record. Maybe civilizations like ours have happened multiple times, but if they each only last 300 years, no one would ever find them. What they ended up with are diffuse, long-lived traces including fossil fuel combustion residues, mostly carbon, evidence of mass extinctions, plastic pollutants, synthetic chemical compounds not found in nature, and even transuranic isotopes from nuclear fission. In other words, what we would need to look for in the geologic record are the same distinctive signals that humans are laying down right now. Finding signs of an altered carbon cycle would be one big clue to previous industrial periods. Since the mid-18th century, humans have released half a trillion tonnes of fossil carbon at high rates. Such changes are detectable in changes in the carbon isotope ratio between biological and inorganic carbon. That is, between the carbon incorporated into things like seashells and that which goes instead into lifeless volcanic rock. Another tracer would be distinctive patterns of sediment deposition. Large coastal deltas would hint at boosted levels of erosion and rivers, or engineered canals, swollen from increased rainfall. Telltale traces of nitrogen in the sediments could suggest the widespread use of fertiliser, indicating industrial-scale agriculture as a possible cause. 
spikes in metal levels in the sediments might instead point to a runoff from manufacturing another heavy industry. More unique, specific traces would be non-naturally occurring stable synthetic molecules such as steroids and many plastics, along with well-known pollutants, such as polychlorinated biphenyls, toxic chemical compounds from electrical devices, and chlorofluorocarbons, the ozone-eating molecules from refrigerators and aerosol sprays. The key strategy in distinguishing the presence of industry from nature is developing a multi-factor signature, is looking for multiple signatures that point the way, so that an event could be seen from lots of different independent traces that all point to an artificial cause, as opposed to a different set of changes that are associated with natural geophysical causes. The authors note that their work could apply to looking for traces of ancient civilizations on other planets. They conclude, while we strongly doubt that any previous industrial civilization existed before our own, asking the question in a formal way that articulates explicitly what evidence for such a civilization might look like raises its own useful questions, related both to astrobiology and to Anthropocene studies. Thus, we hope that this paper will serve as motivation to improve the constraints on the hypothesis, so that in future we may be better placed to answer our title question. Their paper was titled, The Silurian Hypothesis. Would it be possible to detect an industrial civilization in the geological record? And was published online by Cambridge University Press. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please subscribe to the Diffusion Science Radio channel on youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8 Triple C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2 MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3 MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7 LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2 XFM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos, and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labeled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf, or join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. 
When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.